This episode of Just One of the Guys is brought to you by the letters F and U, because I royally f***ed up. When the outside temperature rises, and the meeting is all so clear, one thousand and one yellow daffodils Begin to dance in front of you, oh dear Are they trying to tell you something? You're missing that one final screw You're simply not in the pink, my dear To be honest, you haven't got a clue Slightly mad I'm going slightly mad It finally happened, happened. It finally happened oh, It finally happened I'm slightly mad Oh dear Hello and welcome to episode 6 of Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast. This is a weekly internet radio show covering the Green Lantern comics from cover date June 1990 till cover date November 2004, with a special emphasis on the characters of Kyle Rayner and Guy Gardner. I'd like to thank everyone who's been downloading and listening to the podcast, especially some of you people who've downloaded podcast number 4 and realized that the first 12 minutes of it were talking for a few minutes, or not even a few minutes, a few seconds, and then it going completely silent. Thank you very much to Mr. Michael Bradley. Uh, I didn't even pre-listen to this, so I'm going to have to give myself a mea culpa. One second, let me let me go out here. And... Okay, I got the whip here. One second, and mea culpa. <laughs> mea culpa. Mea maxima culpa. Okay, there we are. Well, that out of the way, I'd like to give some shout-outs to the podcast who've been playing my promo, especially one to Jeffrey Taylor and Mike Bailey over at the excellent Superman podcast from Crisis to Crisis. Last week, they just wrapped up their Funeral for the Friend episode, or Funeral for a Friend episode, and so basically, I think that's going to be their final episode. I mean, after Superman died and went to heaven, essentially, you know, there's nothing more for them to do, so... I think they're going to cover a Legacy of Superman thing, which covers, you know, what the other heroes in Metropolis were doing, and that's the end of the show. So it's kind of a sad ending, but hopefully they'll go on to bigger and better things. But I really appreciate them. They played my promo during their show. Uh, I'm going to promote them as well. I'd also like to thank uh, Steve Rogers. Uh, he sent an email to the uh, website address, which is just one of the guys podcast at gmail.com. Write in if you'd like to. He sent an email setting up a link for all the Capri Sun ads. They've got scans on the internet, and I've put, got that link posted at the website, just one of the guys.libson.com. You can go there, click on the link, it'll take you to the page, and you can check out the ridiculous that is the Capri Sun ads from these comic books. Well, with that minimal amount of preamble out of the way, I'm going to take a break play a few promos for some podcasts that everyone who's listening to this podcast needs to listen to, and when we get back, we'll do my review 
of Green Lantern number six. So, here we go. Hey everyone, my name is Michael Bailey. And I am Jeffrey Taylor. And we host a podcast called From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast. Presented by the Superman homepage. On the show... Wait, wait, wait. What? This just isn't working out for me. It's not bombastic enough. We need something epic. Like what? Welcome to From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast, presented by the Superman homepage. I am Jeffrey Taylor. And I am Michael Bailey. From Crisis to Crisis chronicles the adventures of Superman wait, wait, from... Wait, 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 I'm just not feeling this. I'm just wondering how there's a needle-scratching sound when all of this is clearly digital. Look, all we need to say is that this is the, a trailer for a show called From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast presented by the home, Superman homepage. My name is Michael Bailey. I am Jeffrey Taylor. And every week we give in-depth synopsis and reviews for just about every Superman book published between Man of Steel number one in 1986 and Adventures of Superman number 649 in 2006. We also talk about the related Superman media, what was happening in the rest of the world when these comics were published and what else was going on in the DC Universe. The show drops every Thursday-ish at the Superman homepage, which is located at www.supermanhomepage.com. From Crisis to Crisis is also a proud member of the Superman Podcast Network, located at www.supermanpodcastnetwork.com. So join Jeffrey and I each week as we explore Superman during the post-crisis era, which includes Exile, Panic in the Sky, Doomsday, The Marriage, and Beyond. And write into the show at FromCrisisToCrisis at gmail.com and hear it read on the air, eventually, because we get behind on that sort of thing. Superman created by Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster. Side effects from From Crisis to Crisis include loss of money from buying back issues, a desire to read 20-year-old comic books, nausea, drowsiness, pizza, blurred vision, upset stomach, a desire to kick puppies and kittens, and backache from lifting boxes of Superman comics. If the excitement of From Crisis to Crisis lasts more than four hours, seek immediate medical attention. said Mongo, Dindy. That's wrong character, wrong universe, and wrong galaxy. Hold on just one sec. Ah, here we go. Flash Legacies, a podcast connecting the adventures of Wally West, the third hero to be known as The Flash. Join me, Dave Walker, in my bi-weekly journey as I look at Wally's career from when he first donned the mantle of the Flash all the way up to the return of Barry Allen. Find me at flashlegacies.limson.com
He was a hero to some, a villain to others, and wherever he rode, people spoke his name in whispers. He had no friends, this Jonah Hex, but he did have two companions. One was death itself, the other, the acrid smell of gun smoke. Death and the Acrid Smell of Gunsmoke, the Jonah Hex Podcast. Available Thursdays at two true freaks.libson.com. In a world where planets die, I have come to the conclusion Krypton is doomed. Did I hear him right? Where good and evil fight a never-ending battle. But millions of people will die. Billions! Once again, the press underestimates me. One man will become a hero. Every world needs its heroes, Clark. They inspire us to be better than we are. And they protect us from the darkness that's just around the corner. One man Rise to the challenge. Look, up in the sky, it's a bird! It's a plane! One man will wear spandex. Well, one thing's for sure, nobody's going to be looking at your face. Mom? <laughs> well, they don't call them tights for nothing. <laughs> Presenting The Thrilling Adventures of Superman, a podcast looking at the Man of Steel's history via his earliest adventures in comics, radio, and film. Featuring reviews, commentary, creator spotlights, and more. Join the adventure at greatcrypton.com. And we're back. Hope you guys enjoyed, again, listening to some of these great podcast promos for these great podcasts. Go ahead and check them out. They're everywhere on the internet, and they're always fun to listen to. But with all that said and done, promos out of the way, let's go ahead and get into our coverage of Green Lantern number 6. Green Lantern 6 was cover dated November 1990 with a price of $1 US, $1.25 Canada, and the UK price was 50 pence. The title of the story was Two Against the World. The writer, again, was Gerard Jones, penciler Pat Broderick, inker Bruce Patterson, letterer Albert Guzman, colorist Anthony Tolan, assistant editor Kevin Dooley, and the editor was Andy Helfer. Same guys last time. It's getting to be kind of commonplace here. Space. The final frontier. These are the voyage of one Guy Gardner, Earth's most awesome Green Lantern. At least that's what it says on his business cards, who is currently scouring the galaxy, trying to remember his way toward the planet Oa. Having not spent much time there, he is surprised when he finally reaches the home of the now-defunct Green Lantern Corps. 
Knowing that when he gets to Oa, that he will have to go toe-to-toe with a crazy guardian, Guy ponders his predicament. Suddenly, a beam of green energy hits him in the eye, knocking him unconscious. The beam is a high-speed mind transmission from which Hal gives Guy a map of the patchwork planet, as well as advice to hitch a ride to the surface on a, on a passing asteroid. Guy comes to and begrudgingly takes Hal's advice and floats slowly towards Oa on a passing piece of space debris. Planet-side, Hal stares at the cityscapes in the distance. Hot Widow Mom Rose scolds him for daydreaming, telling him to dump the weeds he needs to pick in the ditch behind those trees. Hal realizes that Rose is still under the old-timer's mind control and can't see the wall, separating the two alien cities. Knowing that getting allies is his only chance, Hal uses his ring to contact whoever is on the other side of the wall. Back in space, Guy sees an entire city zooming towards Oa. Sneaking close to it, he allows himself to be pulled in to the pressure bubble surrounding the floating city. Once inside, he quickly finds a place to hide as the city is deposited on Oa's surface by a giant floating construct of the old-timer. The actual old-timer is still seated in front of the broken central battery, with Jon Stewart, his unwilling captive. After ridiculing Jon for his past mistakes, the murder of his wife, and the destruction of Zanchi, he tells him that Oa and its transplanted occupants will be his redemption. But the power that the Guardian needs to keep the transplanted cities on Oa comes with a deadly cost. That being all the energy from the planets they were taken from, including Zudar, Maltus, and Earth. Cut to two crystalline beings worrying over their upheaval from their home. The female reaches for some harmonizing tablets and fluid to calm her nerves. Instead, she finds a hiding Guy Gardner who quickly leaves his spot in the couple's cupboard. Guy flies off to the city and hears a ring-translated shouts of supposed praise for the presence of a Green Lantern. Sadly for Guy, the aliens are under the mind control of the old-timer and they fire their weapons at him, knocking him out of the sky. At the wall between Rose's farm and the alien city, Hal throws up a mirror and megaphone construct to see and communicate with the aliens over the wall. One of the aliens is a Zudarian, Hal saved from being beaten in the last issue, and he says that they would never turn their backs on a Green Lantern. Hal asks the Zudarian's name, and he finds that he is speaking to Tomar II. Surprised that the alien might be a relation to former Green Lantern Corps member Tomar Ray, Hal asks the Zudarians to watch the sky for the presence of another Earth Green Lantern. Just as he finishes request, Rose walks up behind him and sees the world as it is, rather than how the old-timer wants her to. Freaked out, Hal calms her down and asks her to pretend like she doesn't see it, because he has a plan, and an ally to make the plan reality. That ally, Guy Gardner, rises after being shot down by the walking D-20s. With a little construct-powered billiards to get rid of the attackers, Guy flies off to find Hal. Flying along, Guy comes to the transplanted Evergreen City, where he gets about the same response from the local police as he did from the polyhedral aliens. As Guy zooms out of the range of the police officer's gunshots, he runs head-on to the floaty head of the old-timer, as well as some of his friends, the lava-shooting shugs from the last issue. Meanwhile, Hal is playing expositional plot device to hot widow mom Rose and her son Toby. He tells Rose about the Guardians, how they left this plane of existence to make cosmic whoopee with the Zamorans, and how the old-timer, left behind with no companionship, went mad. 
Without warning, Hal stops his story short and walks off, knowing that the proverbial shit is about to get real. Cut back to Guy, who is not faring very well against the Shugs. The yellow flames from their fireballs, or if you recall, fire poop balls, are making mincemeat of Guy's shield, until Guy summons his will and shoots a blast of green energy right in the mouth of one of the Shugs, destroying it. But the floaty head of the old-timer chides Guy, saying that there are plenty more where that one came from. As the fight with Guy is raging on, many of the Shugs are distracted by a green visage, speaking their native tongue. These Shugs bow down and worship the image. Just as Guy looks like a goner, the converted Shugs attack Guy's antagonist, much to the dismay of the floaty head of the old-timer. Guy adds insult to entry by shooting a ring-powered beam at the Guardian's floaty head, causing it to explode and knock the actual old-timer out. This stops the Shug's attack on Guy, and he flies off to the destination Hal transmitted to him. But, before he can reach it, a giant construct of the old-timer appears before Guy, and, in a scene to rival the Exorcist, vomits up all the transport-planted aliens who are still loyal to him. While Guy is distracting the old-timer, Hal rushes to the destroyed central battery where John Stewart is still being held captive. He tells John that he is going to fly into the battery, supercharge himself, and take on the old-timer. But as Hal comes streaking out of the battery, the Guardian smacks Hal down. It seems that the old-timer, not Oa, is now the conduit of the Emerald Energy of Will, and Hal is held captive with Guy and John. Scolding Hal for creating constructs of the local aliens' messiahs to fool them, the old-timer probes Hal's mind for any thoughts of what his plan was. But Hal has deleted them from his memory. But it is of little consequence to the old-timer, as he now has his own messiah, as well as two thieves captive, and ready for martyrdom. Again, another really great issue of Green Lantern, we finally got the three remaining Green Lanterns all together on Oa. They're trying to fight the Mad Guardian. He's putting up an incredible resistance with all the aliens on the planet, you know, helping him. There's some neat horror vibe going on. It's it's just really coming together. Again, I can't say enough about Jones and Broderick knocking it out and really setting up the Green Lantern comic for this era. But let's go ahead and get on to the notes for this issue. We'll start off with the cover, which has the title of Captives of the Mad God. It's a really dynamic cover with the three lanterns, Hal, John, and Guy, being held by the diminutive guardian against the background of the broken central battery. And it's really a great dynamic cover, uh, but I can't stop staring at at John's uniform, because it's got basically an arrow pointing down toward his badge. So your eyes are horribly directly drawn to it, and I'm having to look away right now. Page 2, panel 5, or the inset panel, we get a nice little shot of Guy Gardner hitching a ride on the asteroid that's headed towards Oa. Kind of a neat sort of Empire Strikes Back Millennium Falcon move to sort of you know, hide his way to getting to Oa. I thought it was pretty clever, and it's a neat image of Guy just sort of hanging out on an asteroid as it floats through space. Page 3, panel 1, we get a nice cheesecake shot of of Rose and her uh, Daisy Dukes, and 
for the ladies. You get a nice cheesecake shot of Hal and his tight, you know, I guess 501s, I would presume would be of this time era. But yeah, some cheesecake shots of some butts, you know, for people to look at. Always nice. Page four, panels two through four. And here we get a good uh, little dose of comic book physics as Guy flies to the space-traveling city and gets sucked in by the vacuum bubble that's surrounding the city. It's a bit of weird, kind of off-kilter comic book physics, but it's fun nonetheless, and it doesn't seem completely unreasonable if you take into consideration that, you know, a giant alien pulling cities out of their foundation and transporting them through space is pretty commonplace. Page 6, panel 5, we get the old-timer finally revealing how truly evil his plans. I mean, he is going to have to destroy every planet he's taken transplanted cities from in order to maintain the power to keep the cities here on Oa. This is truly evil on a, on a obviously a galactic scale, and it really sets up the idea that the lanterns are going up an enemy that's far greater than anything that they've ever gone up against. Page 7, panel 1, you get your first shot of a different type of alien race that's been transplanted to Oa. You get the uh, Chasalon aliens. Now, I'm not exactly certain what their actual alien name is, but they're the polyhedral. They look like giant, clear, 20-sided die, if you've ever played Dungeons & Dragons, which obviously I have. And of course, during the Green Lantern Corps era, they had a Green Lantern selected from their race, Chasalon, to be a Green Lantern. So, if you've got an image of what he looks like in your mind, you'll get an image of what these characters look like as well. Page 7, panel 4, we get Guy hiding in the cupboard of these aliens, and it kind of makes you wonder how he got in there. The readers are sort of led to believe that Guy probably came in through the water system or the sewage system to get in there, and I didn't know if the ring would actually allow him to get in through the water main. Whatever. He's there. Page 9, panel 5, we get our first introduction to the soon-to-be Green Lantern, Tomar 2. And uh, it's kind of neat that we get a callback to the uh, Zudarian aliens, and uh, that they've had a long line and long history of their race providing lanterns for the core. However, this is another wonky thing that Howl and the rest of the lanterns seem to do with their constructs. What Al, what Hal does to communicate with the Zudarians across the wall is he creates a megaphone, a rearview mirror from a, like a car, and an ear. Now, the megaphone I can understand. That's pretty simple. The ear, although a bit odd, is understandable. You know, it's something to hear with. But the mirror is the one that gets me. I mean, it looks like an actual mirror, and... I'm not certain how the physics of refraction and, you know, light amplification and everything would work with, you know, a ring-powered construct. I guess it's just more comic book physics, and you should just realize that Hal makes things and go with it. Page 10, we get Rose finally realizing that Hal's been communicating with other aliens, and she snaps out of the whole brainwashing phase that the Guardian is... Next, we go to page 11, panel 3. Uh... 
it's a pretty cool water construct that uh, Guy creates. Uh, his ring shoots out, not a beam, but it shoots out like a sort of splash of water. It's one of the things that I really enjoyed in the Green Lantern movie when uh, How was fighting against Hector Hammond and Amanda Waller fell. He caught her with a sort of ring construct pool of water, and then after that, the water sort of dissipated and flow, uh, flowed away, carrying Amanda Waller with it. And this is kind of a neat sort of, you know, predecessor to that. And the same page, panel four, we get Guy playing a little pool with the uh, D20-sided aliens. It's a nice little pool construct, you know. So Guy gets to play Minnesota Fats. Page 13, as I mentioned in the synopsis, Hal gets to do an exposition dump, simply because the Expositional News Network isn't broadcasting out on OA, and Hal's able to catch up uh, Rose and Toby and the readers on basically what has happened over the past uh, few years or so, with the Guardians going off to make the Space Humpty Dance with the Xamarons and the Central Power Battery getting cracked and just all the mess that was going on. Page 14, we get a really nice fight of Guy going up against the giant orange rock monsters that this issue have finally been given a name as the Shugs. And I think they're given that name because that's kind of the sound that it makes when the, again, flaming poop balls, check the last issue, come flying from the little rocket tube out of their head. Like I said, this is a really neat design alien, and it's really, it's a really cool dynamic fight between this. There's the final panel on page 14 of Guy getting hit by the, uh, the flaming poop balls again. is just really neat. He's just flying forward, all sort of, you know, Tom Cruise and Mission Impossible from the explosion, which, yes, I realize couldn't really happen, but it's comic book, comic book physics. Let it go. Page 15, panel 4, this is something I thought was incredibly cool. During this time period in Green Lantern, it was said that the rings could actually read people's minds, and in fact manipulate people's minds. So what Hal did was he read the aliens' minds, created a construct of who they believed their deity was, basically their Shug Jesus, and created a construct of that shug Jesus to convert some of the aliens to do what the construct says. And it is a really clever plot device that I don't think would be done in modern comics. I mean, the fact that Hal created from these beings' minds a deity in order to convert them to helping him out is just really clever. I can't say enough about that idea. Page 16, panel 6, we get a nice little thing of guy, you know, beaten and bruised on the ground, you know, holding up his ring and shooting a beam of energy at the floaty head of the Guardian, and we just get a little pop as his head sort of, you know, just dissipates, and it feeds back to the Guardian and kind of messes them up. It's a neat little panel. Page 18, panel 1, we get the same thing with Hal creating another construct of one of the alien's deities, and he basically creates Bat-Jesus, so pretty neat there. Again, uh, page 19, panel 1. In the previous panel, we see the giant green construct of the Mad Guardian, you know, going after Guy. 
And then this one we see just really kind of a horrific sort of Linda Blair-esque image of the construct of the old-timer just vomiting up all these aliens, just pouring out of his mouth, coming to attack Guy. It's a really horrific image. It's really reminiscent of, like I said, The Exorcist, and it gives kind of a eerie vibe to the whole book. Page 20, panel 4, as Hal's talking to the trapped John Stewart, and he tells him that he's gone into the central battery before to recharge. Uh, that's a nice callback to Emerald Dawn. I like the fact that they've got a little note with an asterisk at the bottom saying, hey, if you wanted to find out what happened or how this relates to this comic, go back and pick up Emerald Dawn. Again, comic books don't seem to do that very often, and it would be nice if, you know, when you're reading something, you can get an idea of, hey, I wonder where this happened, and you could actually go find that comic and read it and be more informed. And Plus, also, you know, they might be able to sell some trades. You know, it makes sense. Come on, DC. Get back on doing this. Page 21, as we see Hal shoot out of the central battery, we see that his whole idea of recharging himself really didn't work too well, as the old-timer pretty much eye-beams the living crap out of him. And on page 22, panel 6, I didn't notice this when I was initially reading a comic, but now that I've gotten a little older and I've reread it with more of a critical eye, I'm really noticing a lot of crucifixion imagery on here. I mean... You've got Hal in the middle with John and Guy on the sides, and it's really kind of an analog in an odd way to the whole crucifixion story and with Jesus and the two thieves on his side. So I'm assuming that the old guardian would essentially be Pontius Pilate. You know, I don't want to get too much into religion on this podcast because, well, this is about funny books and Aside from the idea that a man could find a male and female pair of every animal living on the earth, put it on a boat, and sail around for 40 days on it, the Bible really doesn't have that much comedy value to it. But with notes out of the way, let's take a look at some of the amazing ads this comic has to offer up for us. On the front inside cover, we get one uh, for Target Renegade, which has the stereotypical mulleted headband-wearing uh, guy in black doing a flying kick through a board with the title of the game Target Renegade and it is all kinds of 80s, 90s horribleness from the mullet to the shirt which is pretty much exposing his nipple and some of the bad guys that look like uh, just generally people who would probably be riding the short buses as villains. It's it's a tough time for the uh, video game buying audience. The same thing can be said for our next ad, which is for a video game for World Championship Wrestling featuring the Road Warriors and other NWA stars. This game is so good, it doesn't even show you screenshots of the game, it just shows you a poorly drawn animation of the Road Warriors, which are balding, mohawked men with spiky shoulder pads on. So, there you have it. And speaking of mullets, on the next page you get Bad Guys Beware! Captain Planet and the Planeteers are coming to TV! Yes, the Ted Turner-based Captain Planet and the Planeteers with the ethnically diverse 
group of kids who would, with their power rings, I guess, use the four elements of earth, wind, fire, water, and the fifth element of heart to summon a blue-skinned Captain Planet to go beat the crap out of Republican stereotypes. Uh, Ted Turner, stop, stop doing things. Stop, just stop. Later on, we get another uh, advertisement for the Dungeon Monster game. Yes, of course, if you were too lazy to go out and actually roll up a character and play a Dungeon and Dragon game, you could just play this board game and have half as much fun as you would. Then, of course, another ad for Street Fighter 2010 says, Few live to finish this game. Probably because few people bought the game and wanted to finish it in the first place. Again, we get another ad for Fleer basketball cards with, you know, David Robinson and Michael Jordan being on some of the cards. Could care less. We've got another ad for AMT stock cars. Our stock cars are modeled after winners, including Richard Petty, Billy Elliot, and Rusty Wallace. So, unfortunately, no dick trickle there. Too bad. Last page, we get in space, there are no speed limits. Galaxy 5000, a game by Activision. And usually Activision puts out pretty good games. This one looks sort of like one of those 3D, you know, three-quarter scrollers, kind of on the lines of Zaxxon, if you remember that. So although it looks really good, it is probably incredibly difficult to play. Back cover of the comic, inside cover, we get the ad for NARC, which is, again, the side-scroller where you basically shoot people because they use drugs, and people who use drugs are bad. And on the back, this is the ad that I'm going to talk about because in the center of the magazine, they've got a two-page splash for the video game Splatterhouse. Now, in previous episodes, I mentioned during the 90s, there was basically the Super, the Nintendo Entertainment System, and this was a bit before the Genesis and the Super Nintendo System. But while the Nintendo Entertainment System was out, one of the main competitors for that was the TurboGrafx-16. Unfortunately, it didn't get the high-profile games that the Nintendo System did, so it had to come up with its own games, and one of the big games, aside from... Bonk's adventure was Splatterhouse. And in the middle of the comic, they have this great ad. And by great, I mean horrible. For the game Splatterhouse. Now, let me kind of set it up for you. The art style is somewhat reminiscent of, well, kind of Kirby-esque figures, especially the floaty head at the end. But it's really not very good. To say that it looks like Kirby is kind of disservice to Kirby and I don't want to do that. But I'm going to go ahead and give you my dramatic reading of the Splatterhouse ad. It was the mansion of Dr. West, but those who knew it better called it the Splatterhouse. In the first panel we see a spooky old home with, of course, the resident bats coming out of the belfry. And our two protagonists, Rick and Jennifer, are walking up to said house. And Jennifer in the first panel says... West may have been the greatest parapsychologist in our field, and the next panel she goes, but do we have to visit his old home? It gives me the creeps, Rick says. Think of it as a school research project. Besides, the house is empty. What can happen? Of course, as soon as they get in, 
E! Jennifer, what was it? And here. Rawr. Wait, let me read this. It's Growy. G R R R O W W E. Growy. Interesting. Next panel, we get a skull and crossbones, obviously symboling something bad has happened. And the caption says, after a fight in the dark, Rick wakes up and goes, what? What happened to me? What happened to Jennifer? As he lies around in a pool of his own blood. Or maybe someone else's blood. You can't tell. Next panel, we see Rick walking along, thinking to himself, my head, something's wrong. Can't see straight. What's the matter? And in the next panel, Rick walks into a reflective service and goes, Arg! As he looks at himself, he says, My face! It's covered with a terror mask. And let me give you an idea of what the terror mask looks like. If the Red Skull and Destro from G.I. Joe had had an illegitimate love child, its face would probably come out looking much like the supposed terror mask. And the inset caption says, The terror mask. Legend tells that the wearer is granted vast power but can't remove it. In the next panel, we get Rick beating off these hordes of beasties with a crowbar, saying, if I take it off, I may never get Jennifer back, which is kind of silly, because basically the terror mask can't be taken off. I mean, wasn't that what the legend said? Didn't you just read the caption panel a second ago? Idiot. Then the panel after that, it says, rest in pieces, you ugly slime balls." Nothing can keep me from getting Jennifer back. And one of the ugly slime balls, of course, retorts with, Oh, yeah? Yes, there is an ellipsis in there for a pause for the horrible monster rising from the floor who is attacking Rick. And in the final panel, we get the floaty head of Jennifer saying, I'm as good as dead, unless you can help Rick rescue me in the all-new TurboGrafx-16 Splatterhouse. <laughs> okay, it may not be a hostess ad, it may not be a Capri Sun ad, but it is suitably ridiculous, and I'm hoping that you'll enjoy some of this ridiculousness and realize that the 1990s gave us some fun stuff along to go with our comic books. Well, that'll do it for this week's episode of Just One of the Guys. I'd like to remind you that if you want to pick up these comics, they have been reprinted. You can go pick up Green Lantern, The Road Back, at your local comic book shop, or you can order it on Amazon.com. I certainly have it there. If you had a problem with Episode 4 and would like to listen to my full commentary on it, go ahead and go back to the iTunes or the website, justoneoftheguys.libson.com, and I've reposted it there in its full entirety which is redundant. It should just be its entirety. Anyway, thanks, folks, for listening. We'll catch you next Friday, and have a good week. Bye. You've been listening to Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast hosted by yours truly, Sean Ingle. All images, stories, and music are copyright the respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. This podcast is done solely out of my desire to show the denizens of the internet that comic books can be fun, humorous, compelling, thought-provoking, and exciting while not having to fall into the weary tropes of the 1990s. I'm not in any way doing this for monetary gain, which irritates my wife to no end. All feedback for the show can be sent to the show's Gmail account at justoneoftheguyspodcast at gmail.com. 
All feedback, positive and negative, is warmly welcomed. All spam bots are warmly welcomed too, as long as your definition of a warm welcome is for them to die horribly in a fire. The website address for the show can be found at just one of the guys, all one word, dot Lipson, spelled L-I-B-S-Y-N, dot com. There you can find the RSS feed as well as scans of the covers and whatever else I feel like putting up. Look for me on iTunes. Just search for Just One of the Guys podcast. You can also search for me on Facebook. I mean, you won't find me there because I don't have an account there, but if you have enough free time to listen to me babble on about funny book characters, you can obviously spare some time to wander around on Facebook. Thanks again for downloading and listening, and come back next Friday for another episode of Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast. The opening music for this week's podcast is Queen's I'm Going Slightly Mad, off their Innuendo album. You can pick the album up through iTunes, or, if you'd prefer, go to twotruefreaks.libson.com, click the Amazon.com banner on there, and download the song from Amazon.com. You'll be helping out a podcast friend of mine and keeping their great shows on the air.